The following podcast may contain explicit content, which is, I suspect, why many of you are tuning in in the first place. It's Tuesday, January 19th, 2021. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We've been following this saga for a long time. Right after the election, according to New York Magazine's Olivia Nuzzi, Donald Trump was, quote, furious about everything. He was angry things weren't going his way. He was angry Fox had called Arizona for Biden. He was angry that Biden had gone out on TV first. Everyone was offering him different ideas about what to say to the nation to fight or to be measured or to say this or that, contradicting each other as the president grew angrier and angrier. We know now the anger did not abate. The increasingly irritated president's irritation increased. Hunkered down in what one former White House official called the presidential man cave of the Oval Office, President Donald Trump does not want to talk about what lies ahead once he leaves office next month. That from Reuters, this from the Wall Street Journal. By all accounts, Mr. Trump is angry about his election defeat, and he is lashing out at anyone who won't indulge his hopeless campaign to overturn it. That was back before the riot he helped inspire. This was reporting from the journal after Twitter and Facebook for the first time in his life enforced a consequence upon Donald Trump's behavior. The president spent the day in the White House without access to the social media accounts that helped rocket him to power as advisors described him as increasingly angry and isolated. And the grousing, dyspeptic, unhappy, irritated, by turns despondent, sullen and furious president was lashing out. He was vocalizing his deep displeasure. He was going so far as to hold the entire administration hostage to his whims and fits. And so finally, it happened. In an early morning announcement, Donald J. Trump has been traded to the Brooklyn Nets in a four-team monstrosity in which the Nets sent Yes, Donald Trump forced a trade to the Brooklyn Nets. The reaction was fast and swift. Fox Sports 1's Nick Wright was thinking of the huge egos and huge paychecks already on the Nets roster. How is the fit going to work? NBA reporter Chris Haynes, speaking for many fans who had similar questions about roster construction and ego. For drama alone, I'm very interested and intrigued to see how they're going to be able to coexist. Indeed. The Nets were already paying their two-time finals MVP Kevin Durant $40 million and their mercurial point guard and six-time all-star Kyrie Irving $31 million. How would they accommodate the 74-year-old weekend golfer who is medically obese and has never been seen jumping? And off the court, there are troubles too. In Trump, the Nets are acquiring a volatile personality who claims he leaves Washington as one of its greatest leaders the city has ever seen, an assessment that no less a champion than Shaquille O'Neal finds laughable. You know, when you say you, you gave the city your all, that ain't true. And O'Neal's fellow NBA Hall of Famer, Charles Barkley, was similarly dubious about the former real estate developer, 45th president, and two-time impeachee's ability to blend in with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. The only one of those three guys who has proven to me he's not selfish and not a mean guy is, is KD. Barkley and Shaq also cited lack of leadership, egocentrism, a tendency to blame others when really he's the one calling the shots, complaining publicly about his team when he was essentially the one who assembled the personnel. It was also noted that in his last spot, Trump created a toxic environment by clearly putting his own interests beyond the interest of anyone else. Shaq, 
summed it up this way. When you're the man, you got a big responsibility. It's all on you. So when it comes time to show up, he ain't show up. Others were more positive about the chances of success. Fox Sports 1's Nick Wright, again, thinking of Donald Trump's outsized role in the minds of the Republican base, thought the deal had a chance of working out well. If I'm the Nets, I would have made this move as well. Because the elephant in the room actually isn't an elephant, it's a king. Well, maybe only in the mind of the six foot two shooting guard who wound up at Penn after transferring from Fordham. He is a bit of a wild card. There is no reason to believe that Trump will defer to Irving or Durant or any of the other players on the Nets or anyone else who is actually a professional basketball player or even just a basketball player or merely just a human who could jog up and down the court three times without falling over while wheezing. On the plus side, Trump will bring a new fan base to the team. And the Trump family has numerous ties to Chinese billionaires, such as Nets owner Joe Tsai. Though Trump has said that he was disappointed that the Nets are no longer owned by the Russian billionaire Mikhail Prokhorov. Trump confidants say that in Donald Trump, the Brooklyn Nets acquire a player who will dispute referee calls like no one the game has ever seen. In fact, most of his offseason efforts have been in building an online infrastructure to discredit and harass any referees who make any questionable or even reasonable calls. And Nets ownership says that in acquiring the Michigan Person of the Year, though there is some dispute over that honor, the team is rostering a player who will bring to the locker room a new energy, what some describe as white and nationalistic. And finally, the team says they might be mortgaging their future in terms of draft pick, salary cap, and soul, but it's worth it in that Donald Trump epitomizes the mindset of simply refusing to accept defeat. So Donald Trump to the Brooklyn Nets, and also Victor Oladipo is going to the State Department. On the show today, one more day to remember Trump. And so we shall dedicate our spiel to that end. But first, you know how they say that the 60s didn't begin until the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan or the 80s didn't start until Ronald Reagan was inaugurated? Well, this past year, 2020, won't be only merely dead, but really most sincerely dead until Donald Trump is out of office. So we have one day more, one more day to slip in some last vestige of culture, escapism, even artistry right now under the wire. Chris Malamphy is here with the number one singles of the year 2020. Enjoy. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. 
Often I will start, you'll hear in this section of the show, me telling you something about a year, you know, the Pittsburgh Pirates won the World Series or it was the year of the kumquat. But the year I will try to evoke today, I can evoke it by just saying it was the last one. It was the one that just ended. You remember it. People didn't like it. It was 2020. And the number one Billboard hits of 2020 are now going to be analyzed and chewed over in a way they haven't been chewed over before, at least not to my satisfaction, by Chris Malamphy, author of the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate, and he comes on the gist. He hasn't for a while, but thank goodness he's here to talk about the number one hits of the year that was. Chris, thanks for coming by. You got it, Mike. I I guess if there was ever a year when uh, it made sense for us to take a long break, this was it, right? So... I was contemplating the number one hits of 2020. And, you know, as one ages, as my 40s end, maybe it's natural that I become a little disconnected with the pop charts. Plus, as technology fractures and we're all a little bit in our silos, it's unlikely, uh, more unlikely than it was, say, 10, 20 years ago, that I would encounter a song without really asking to or selecting the media that uh, blares at me. So with all that as prologue, I am so surprisingly to me unfamiliar with so many of these songs. And I wonder if you have any explanation as to why that is. As a matter of fact, I do, Mike. If ever there were a year where even aging guys like you and me were entitled not to know some of the number one hits on the Hot 100, it's 2020. And not only because we were all distracted by, hello, a global pandemic. The charts behaved very strangely in 2020. Here's the main trivia tidbit I want to throw at people. We set a record this year for most debuts at number one in Hot 100 history in a single year. There were 12. That is an insane number of number one debuts. The prior record was four number one debuts in a single year. We tripled that in 2020. Some of these hits are what I would call real hits, meaning mm-hmm. they stuck around, they stayed in the top five or the top 10, they be- they crossed over to the radio, they became serious radio hits, they penetrated the culture. And some of these were off the chart remarkably quickly. And it's a little unpredictable which ones were off the chart remarkably quickly. To preview just, you know, one of the examples, Taylor Swift had two number one hits this year, and both of them dropped like rocks after their debuts at number one, even though both are, in my opinion, excellent songs. Um, So even an artist as big as Taylor Swift can have a short-lived number one hit, and she was not alone. Breaking on TikTok. Talk about that a little. Yes, let's talk about the TikTok factor. That is the other X factor of so many of these hits, both the ones that debuted at number one and the ones that grew to number one. The song that spent the most weeks at number one of any song in all of 2020 is a song by Roddy Rich called The Box. And mm. here's the crazy thing about The Box. The Box was, I believe, the fourth single from Roddy Rich's album. And let me amend that. It wasn't really a single. It was a song that was organically landed on by TikTok users who loved the opening noise in the song, this little squeaky ear ear sound at the beginning of the song, uh, which it turned out was ideal for 15 second TikTok videos. The label in late 2019 is working all of these other tracks by Roddy Rich to radio and to the video 
services. They shot glossy videos. There was no music video for the box. They weren't actively working it to radio stations. And it takes off on TikTok and eventually goes to number one on the Hot 100. For the record, TikTok itself does not yet count for the Hot 100. I'm not sure if it ever will, but everything that it you know, effects like download sales and especially streaming sent the box to number one where it stayed for 11 weeks. And this is a trend for the rest of the year. Uh, several other songs, Z Slide by Drake is a number one hit, effectively tailor-made for TikTok. There were TikTok dances for Savage, Rain On Me. All of these uh, had tremendous popularity on TikTok. And even though TikTok itself doesn't count for the chart, it has a massive knock-on effect on all three metrics, streaming, sales, and airplay that do count for the chart. Roddy Rich was on, wrapped a verse or two on DaBaby's song, Rockstar, and that... That song was released in a couple different versions, and there was one version with new lyrics and a video which clearly evokes the death of George Floyd. I mean, it starts off with DaBaby just looking at the camera, and we see that he is being kneeled on by a police officer, and there is a lot of Black Lives Matter imagery. Did this song take off before that video, or did that video and that imagery propel the song in a summer of BLM protests to number one? Rockstar by DaBaby featuring Roddy Rich pre-existed the tragic death of George Floyd. Frankly, its lyrics are kind of a coincidence. They, its original lyrics, uh, specifically the lyric that everybody remembers: "Brand new Lamborghini, fuck a cop car." Brand new Lamborghini, fuck a cop car. With a pistol on my hip like I'm a cop. Which sounds like it's tailor-made for the era of Black Lives Matter protests. But it dates back to an album that DaBaby dropped in the spring, long before the wave of BLM protests in May and June. However, it goes to number one the week ending June 13th, so really with data from late May. And that's before the BLM remix is dropped. And uh, it gets there before uh, DaBaby releases that remix. And then it stays at number one for, uh, I believe, seven weeks, becoming the song of the summer. Uh, It beat uh, heavy competition from everybody from Megan Thee Stallion to Lady Gaga. So it's a big airplay hit. The BLM remix turned out to be important for a week or two, but really the original version was what held at number one the longest. But you have to give it up to DeBaby for reading the room and realizing that he had captured a mood. The BLM remix was well-timed and appropriate and I, I thought very heartfelt. Sometime around May, a bunch of songs, most of them starting with S, started to appear at number one. I don't know any of them. Tell me some, something about them. Well, okay, one of them that really dropped like a rock is this song by Travis Scott and Kid Cudi called The Scots. Uh, They Uh called themselves The Scots and titled their song The Scots. The only thing that's remarkable about this song is that he premiered it in the video game Fortnite. It was that kind of year. When we were all stuck at home, you know, you were better off debuting your song in some kind of electronic medium because you couldn't tour, of course. We've got number ones from uh, Savage, my favorite single of the year by Megan Thee Stallion featuring Beyonce. The Savage remix featuring Beyonce is really a reinvention of the song. They keep the original Megan Thee Stallion 
chorus largely intact, but there are all new verses from Queen Bee. Uh, she's rapping, uh, not just singing, but rapping on the song better than I've ever heard her rap before. She's got she drops some real bars in uh, this song. Please don't give me hype. Write my name in ice. Can't argue with these lazy bitches. I just raise my price. I'm a boss. I'm a leader. I pull up. Now Megan the Stallion. This is this is a song that was everywhere. WAP, which of course I'll say it. I'll say it. You know. Wet-ass pussy. That's what it stands for, being factual. Do you know what its clean version is? No, I have no idea. Tell me. <laughs> Weirdly, okay, the radio edit version is called Wet and Gushy. Which Wet and Gushy! <laughs> somehow, to me, sounds filthier than Wet-ass oh, pussy. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. I'm alone in that. Several people have pointed this out. So she managed to come up with a <laughs> bodlerized <laughs> radio edit that somehow sounds dirtier than the filthy version. So go figure. <laughs> Oh, God. So let's give WAP its props. WAP is a, yet another of the songs that debuted at number one. Unlike some of the songs in the spring, WAP had real staying power. WAP was number one for four weeks. It stayed in the top 10 for several months. It eventually became a medium-sized radio hit, which when you consider how dirty it is, even in its wet and gushy version, is kind of remarkable. I think it debuted just outside the top 20 on the radio songs chart. I think that was because radio felt they had to play it, as filthy as it is. You know, the song is kind of a banger. I mean, uh, I, for my money, as good as Cardi B is, and, you know, she's always charming, uh, the star of the song is Megan The Stallion. Uh, her triple-time flow on her verses is just dazzling. All right, let's segue to music clearly not for me, Korean boy band BTS. Yes. Couple, couple big hits. Couple big hits, although there's a difference between them, an important difference. Uh, and I wrote about both of them. This was a huge year for fans of BTS who have been wishing, as has the group itself, that they would score a number one hit on the US charts, i.e., the Hot 100. They finally achieved it with Dynamite, which has another distinction. It's the first BTS single in their roughly five or six year career that was recorded entirely in English. And the group and their management were pretty shamelessly trolling the world looking for a song that sounded like BTS but could be recorded in English. And they got it with Dynamite, which was basically uh, written to order. And it worked. Dynamite, like WAP, debuted at number one. And, and unlike many of the other number one debuts this year, it actually stayed at number one for multiple weeks and hung out in the top 10. It also... Uh, became a serious radio hit in America. This was always the handicap for BTS. Singing in Korean, their songs would always sell very well to their American fan base, but they would rarely get any airplay. The other number one hit BTS scored uh, a song called Life Goes On, which was an advanced track for their latest album, B, which was a number one smash. Life Goes On is in Korean uh, with just a handful of English lyrics. I mean, very small, like less than, I don't know, 30% of the song is in English. The vast majority is in Korean. And that was a milestone for BTS too, because to get a number one song mostly in Korean to number one on the Hot 100, that's unprecedented. Well, let's pivot and talk about a song that not only did not drop like a rock, but was resurrected, if you will, and maybe will continue to be forevermore. Mariah Carey started the year with All I Want for Christmas Is You. Her uh, 1994 song, re-released, went to number one last Christmas, went to number one again right around Christmas time a couple weeks ago. 
We all know the song, great Christmas, now up there with the classics. But ah, when Bing Crosby recorded White Christmas, was that recharting year after year? Is there a reason why All I Want for Christmas is You is doing that in a way that some of the other Christmas classics haven't? The answers to all your questions is yes. Believe it or not, Bing was recharting back in the 40s and 50s with White Christmas. He just wasn't going back to number one year after year. Okay. Uh, this is a new phenomenon. This is only the second number one hit in Hot 100 history to go back to number one in two completely separate chart runs. There are songs that will sometimes fall out of number one and then come back to number one a few weeks later or a week or two later. No. All I Want for Christmas is You fell off the chart completely, then came back. The only other song to do that is The Twist by Chubby Checker, which famously went to number one in 1960, fell off the chart for more than a year, then made a comeback when the song was discovered by adults who also liked doing The Twist. Now, here's the difference. Here's the difference between the charts of The Twist and the charts of Bing Crosby's Day. We now have streaming on the charts. Streaming is the single biggest factor on the Hot 100. And it turns out that streaming is finally the X factor that allows us to measure just how popular Christmas records are. Because what do the charts measure? They only measure activity week by week, right? So the reason All I Want for Christmas is You has managed to come back is because for this very tight period, it just gets streamed like crazy. I have made the point several times that it's good that good old-fashioned terrestrial radio airplay, the old-fashioned FM dial, is still included in the Hot 100 because FM radio, I call it the truth serum of hitmaking. It tells us not what people are going to stream the hell out of just for a week, but what endures because radio stations, look, we all hate radio for the way they over-research everything and play the hell out of one song over and over again. But if they've played Blinding Lights by the weekend over and over again and determined, hey, people really like this song, that's a real hit. So the Hot 100 is what I call a blend of active fandom and passive fandom, and nothing measures passive fandom better than terrestrial radio. Just a better thought out, more holistic approach to the number one hits of 2020 than we could have reasonably expected. And I thank you for that, Chris Malamphy. I don't want to get too wet and gushy right here, but <laughs> I appreciate it very much. Chris Malamphy is the author of the Why Is This Song Number One column in Slate, and he comes on this show. We talk about the number one hits of a year, the year being last year, this time. Thank you so much, Chris. You got it, Mike. And now, the spiel. It is a remembrance of things Trump. This is our last official remembrance of things Trump, and I want to do a bit of a mega edition. There is, after all, so much to never forget, but also to never forgive. I actually wanted to do these as a reminder of the weird, the possibly horrific, the, you know, maybe just puzzling words and actions of an actual president who really did do all these weird things. But I also wanted to present them as an exercise in nostalgia, the real meaning of nostalgia, not the wistful kind, but nostalgia coming from root words meaning pain from the past. I mean, here's a guy, not just a guy, an actual president of the United States, but that's who he's president of. <sighs> the only one, in fact, who we had over the last four years who couldn't be broken of his habit of tearing paper into shreds after reading it. This is a problem because presidential papers have to be archived. So in 2018, Politico ran a profile of Solomon Larty. 
Solomon Larty is the government employee, more precisely was the government employee, he was fired, whose job it was to stand over a desk, peering down at dozens of tiny pieces of paper, arranged like a jigsaw puzzle, holding scotch tape in his hand, trying to precisely reaffix the pieces for posterity. I'll quote from the article. Lardy, who earned an annual salary of $65,969 as a record management analyst, was a career government official with close to 30 years under his belt. But he had never seen anything like this in any previous administration he had worked for. He had never had to tape the president's papers back together again. Later, the article quotes Lardy saying, I had a letter from Schumer. He tore it up, he said. It was the craziest thing ever. He ripped papers into tiny pieces. Lardy did not work alone. He said his entire department was dedicated to the task of taping paper back together in the opening months of the Trump administration. That really is a good remembrance of things Trump. What is less so? People have asked or requested. Well, what about this stuff that I very much easily remember? Kofefe or the orb. I don't really care about the orb. It was memorable, sure. Never forget, lest we repeat all that. But I think we'll probably repeat it. They're remaking Dark Crystal, right? We'll, we'll get a reminder of the orb in that one. There were so many ridiculous, dishonest, destabilizing things to remember. We all, I think, remember that Trump lied about his inauguration. But do you recall the specificity of the lies? This was the first time in our nation's history that floor coverings have been used to protect the grass in the mall. That had the effect of highlighting any areas where people were not standing, while in years past, the grass eliminated this visual. This is also the first time that fencing and magnetometers went as far back on the wall, preventing hundreds of thousands of people from being able to access the mall as quickly as they had in inaugurations past. Magnetometers. That was Sean Spicer three years and 363 days ago. If only we could have been more mindful of the magnetometers. So many lies, so much wondering about the purpose of those lies. Was it to condition his people to accept any version of reality? Was it just necessary for his ego? Was there a strategy? Was it all pathology? All the lies, really all the nonsense. You had to ask, and we did, and we want the time back and the mental energy. Was it tactical? Was it lazy? Did he want us to think it was tactical to cover up for the laziness? Did he want us to think it was lazy? But in fact, we were making the mistake because all along it was tactical. So much energy expended to discern and cut through and examine and fight back from the stupidity, the sheer, sheer stupidity that we put up with, that we suspected we couldn't indulge in a time of crisis. And then when the crisis came, we were confirmed, but we took no pleasure in the vindication. There's so much more to remember, so much more than I could possibly get to. He falsely claimed that U.S. Steel reopened seven mills. There was the fight he had with a teenage girl when he said, chill, Greta, chill. He used the phrase, a very stupid guy, to describe the British ambassador. He autographed Bibles. Kellyanne mentioned... And there were the master, masterminds behind the Bowling Green Massacre. Well, Most people don't know that because it didn't get covered. Sarah Sanders feuded with a 26-seat restaurant called the Red Little Hen, and of course, Trump's absolute obsession with signing things and dickering over who got the pen. Remembrances of things Trump is a time to remember, a time that started as shocking, segued into sad, 
and ended up pretty goddamn dangerous. It was and it is important not to forget this very, very stupid time. Malevolence tempered by incompetence shot through with mendacity. And that has been Remembrances of Things Trump. And that's it for the show today. Shana Roth produces The Gist, really just an audio version of standing over a table with a giant jigsaw puzzle full of audio clips and scotch tape. Margaret Kelly is The Gist producer. She has isolated more audio of a bumbling man doing or saying something ridiculous than every editor over the 21-year run of The Benny Hill Show. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She'd very much like you to know that there was a number one song in 2020 by the Scots called The Scots. It was recorded by two guys named Scott. One, Travis Scott and Kid Cuddy. Huh? How's he a Scott? His real name is Scott Miscuddy. I hope he pronounced it that way. Miscuddy. I'll say he does. The gist. I want to look at what Megan the Stallion has done for all of us and apply it to Winnie the Pooh and Kermit the Frog. Add the extra E, guys. The kids will love you. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.